today we are taking a look at the emotional lives of animals. Do animals get embarrassed? Can they empathize, feel anger, experience love? For years, those who've come to the defense of animals have been, have been accused of engaging in anthropomorphism, which is uh, attributing human characteristics to non-human species. Yet our guest today, scientist Mark Beckoff, knows better. Based upon years of studying social communication in a wide range of species, his research concludes that animals have rich emotional lives. Now, with the remarkable success of California's Proposition 2, which requires new regulations on factory farming, it appears that voters are now beginning to re-examine their relationship with animals and to grant that animals experience the highs and the lows of emotions. To help us make sense of the emotional lives of animals, my guest this morning is Mark Beckoff. He's Professor Emeritus of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Colorado at Boulder. He's the author of The Emotional Lives of Animals and uh, a children's book, Animals at Play, which teaches kids that even animals share and follow rules while at play. And uh, Professor Beckoff joins us this morning. Good morning, Professor. Hi, good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for, uh, for joining us. I only read a snippet of your biography because it's only an hour program, but it's... Uh, <laughs> It's quite a uh, it's quite a remarkable uh, career that you've had uh, engaging in cognitive ethology. So why don't we begin by uh, making sure our listeners know exactly what it is you do? So what what does a cognitive ethologist do? Well, a cognitive ethologist um, studies um, animal minds. You know what's in them, how they work. Um, how animals process information, um, what they feel about the world around them. So it's it's kind of an eclectic field that um, really takes into account the um, evolution of cognitive abilities. You know, why do birds plan for the future? Why do lots of animals um, have deep and emo- you know deep emotional lives? Um, things like that. Do animals have beliefs? Can they be moral beings? Et cetera, et cetera. It's it's a very eclectic field. And how do you conduct that kind of research? Is it uh, in a laboratory? Are you out in the field? Um, my, my work has been predominantly in the field, um, but when I've been interested in the um, way in which animals play, which has been a large part of my research program for the last three decades, um, I either study that in free-ranging dogs or free-ranging coyotes or wolves, or animals in the lab. It's very difficult to get detailed information on young animals, but the rest of my work has been all um, in the field. So where has this, uh, where has your studies taken you? Uh, one reading your book will find that you've been uh, everywhere from uh, Antarctica to, uh, you know, all over Africa uh, to your own backyard in, uh, outside of Boulder. Yeah, I've, I've been pretty lucky. I've done a lot. I did a long-term field research on coyotes in the Grand Teton National Park, right outside of Moose, Wyoming. I studied uh, penguins in uh, Antarctica at the Cape Crozier Penguin Rookery, and um, I've done quite a bit of research in the mountains outside of Boulder, where I live, on the behavior of birds such as Stellar's jays and um, Western Evening Grosbeaks. 
I had a good career. <laughs> and, and this has been an interest of yours uh, since childhood, right? This isn't something that just one day, you know, you were walking down the street and, and uh, an egg corn fell on your head and you thought <laughs> you're going to go ahead and study this. No, um, you know, my parents tell me that I always minded animals and I wrote a book called Minding Animals, but, you know, Ever since I've been young, my folks told me that I always wanted to know what animals were thinking and what animals were feeling. And when I was a kid, I yelled at a man for um, hitting, I guess he was yelling at and hitting his dog or going to hit his dog. And I yelled at him to stop, and the guy turned around and chased my father. So um, I think a lot of it has come from just kind of an innate interest in, you know, animals. And some of it, I think, came from the fact that I was raised in a very compassionate home. My folks um, were very, very compassionate. My mother was a very sensitive woman. And I think that all spilled over into the way I, I view the world. I was a conscientious objector um, for the Vietnam War. Um, and that, of course, leads into maybe we'll talk about later my interest in cooperation and compassion in animals. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, let's get into uh, some of the nitty-gritty of... Uh, we'll focus a little bit on the emotional lives of animals, though I should uh, let listeners know that uh, you've got many different publications out, and uh, you could really find, a lot, find out a lot about your kind of work. Uh, by really checking out any of the publications. But uh, The Emotional Lives of Animals is a recent publication that's now out in paperback. So what do you mean when you discuss uh, or suggest that animals have emotional lives? Well, when I, when I, I actually go beyond that. Um, you know, to be honest with you, I know that animals have emotional lives. Some people think that the information we collect is subject, sorry, suggestive. But I know it, and I always say, you know, people who wonder whether dogs have emotions, I'm glad I'm not their dog. And, and I really mean that sincerely. When I look at emotions, I look at why they have evolved and how they uh, function in different species. So we know that emotions have evolved to be what I call a social glue. They um, are important in forming and maintaining social bonds. They emote, you know, or move animals and people to do things. They control our behavior um, in certain situations, what's appropriate to do, and they allow us to behave flexibly. You know, I, I feel joy, but I need to decide if I'm interacting with you or someone else how I should express that joy. So the same reasons humans have emotions can be applied to the same reasons that non-human animals have emotions. And what's fascinating is we find differences among closely related species. It seems that wolves um, are more nuanced, if you will, than less social animals because they live in large groups and have to be able to uh, communicate more subtle messages. And so the more we study, the more we learn, and the fewer skeptics there are. You know, it's funny because uh, one of uh, the sentences that you have in uh, your Animals Manifesto, which we'll get to later, is, is what you had just uh, alluded to, that you say that uh, when people tell you that they love animals, but then they go on to harm them, eat them, or kill them, you tell them that you're glad that, uh, that they don't love you. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, the word love, of course, has a lot of different, um, you know, subtle and not-so-subtle meaning, meanings, but... But I actually use it seriously to say that we're very conflicted in how we interact with animals. And I have lots of friends who say, 
that they love animals and they hunt and fish. Or I have lots of, anim- uh, lots of friends who say they love animals and then they eat um, meat from slaughterhouses. And, you know, what with Proposition 2 but other investigations, you know, over the last couple of years, there's been many instances of extreme torture of animals in um, slaughterhouses. So the reason I say that is, number one, you know, it gets a laugh, but number two, I think it really asks people to reflect on how they feel about animals. Well, you know, I, I, when I was telling some uh, some friends that uh, the topic of my program today was going to be the emotional lives of animals, and this is a good time to remind listeners that they are listening to KUCI. This is Justice or Justice, and we're talking about the emotional lives of animals with Professor Mark Beckoff. Uh, when I told them that that was the topic and that uh, you have a book that explores the emotional lives of animals, the reaction I, I typically got was, well, of course animals have emotional <laughs> lives. You know, even <laughs> scientists tell you that. You know, a lot of scientists, you know, walk behind their um, white coat. They, they go home and love their dog, and then they torture dogs in a laboratory. Um, but, of course... People know that animals have emotions. I mean, that's one of the reasons we're so attracted to animals is because they have emotions. You know, I I love trees and I love rocks, and I'm fortunate to live in a beautiful pine forest. But I do not love trees and rocks and pine trees like I love animals. You know, and it's interesting because... There is, you know, they'll say, well, of course animals have emotional lives, but, but they're oblivious to the fact that they, they're still meat eaters or they wear leather or they contribute to factory farming. And that's not to guilt people because, you know, we live in a very complex society where, unfortunately, we're very dependent upon, uh, upon animals for, really, for things that aren't necessities but that are for luxuries. And so there, there is that, that disconnect. Uh, the other thing that I typically get is, well, some animals have emotions, you know, well, chimpanzees and dolphins. But one of the things I think that you do really well in your book is, uh, you know, you make the case that it isn't just that animals are hardwired, that what appears to be uh, emotions is really just, uh, you know, you know, automatic uh, or the autonomic uh, nervous system. So uh, maybe you could, if you could tell our listeners about uh, mice and uh, whether mice have empathy, that would really help to establish what you mean. Right. Um, in 2006, a group of neurobiologists in, um, at McGill University in Canada discovered that mice feel the pain of other mice. That is, they have empathy. Now, anyone who's lived with mice or has studied mice or, say, has watched the mice who they harm in laboratories could tell you that. But, you know, this is just a good example of what I say science is catching up with what we already know about animals. There's no recent findings in science that contradict much common sense. So um, I find that to be really wonderful because, you know, I'm a scientist and I love doing science. But I also don't think science is the only show in town. You know, along with that, we now know that birds plan future meals. We know that whales have uh, neurons that are called spindle cells. And spindle cells are very important in uh, processing emotions. Previous to that, we arrogantly thought that only great apes, including humans, had spindle cells. So, like I said, my kind of punchline these days is the more we look, the more we learn. 
You know, one of the things that I, uh, I find interesting in your work is you talk about the evolutionary continuum, right? And uh, you cite uh, the work of Charles Darwin a lot because he, you know, had emphasized the what, the six basic emotions and had suggested, you know, early on that animals display emotions. And it seems that so many scientists or so many humanists acknowledge evolution, but the one thing that they leave out of the evolutionary cycle is the evolution of uh, emotion and cognition. They they focus on the physi uh, the physiology, uh, but they ignore the psychology. Right. Um- <clears throat> that's because they don't they either don't understand it um or they, they don't really understand evolution or they're so focused in on mechanism i mean i always say that it's bad biology to um claim that animals don't have emotions and and as you mentioned it's because of the work of charles darwin you know he basically said that Animals have the things that humans have. Uh, the differences between animals are differences in degree rather than differences in kind. That is, the differences are shades of gray, not black and white. So my other motto is, if we have them, if we have something, so do other animals. We're speaking with Mark Beckoff. He is the author of uh, just a number of works taking a look at the emotional lives of animals. Uh, let's uh, delve into uh, the inevitable sin of the anthropomorphism, because I think uh, for people to take this uh, radio program seriously, we need to uh, address the, the elephant in the room, if you'll pardon uh, an attempt <laughs> at, a, at a strange pun. <laughs> for yeah. people who, who read the book, uh, there's a lot of emphasis on elephants. But uh, uh, tell our listeners first what uh, anthropomorphism is and uh, how it gets in the way of people taking some of your work seriously? Um, well, anthropomorphism is basically um, the attribution of human characteristics to non-human entities. It can be also, you know, saying that dogs are happy, uh, chimpanzees are sad, baboons are jealous, or thunderstorms are angry. So we can apply it to a lot of different entities. My take is it's a waste of time any longer to worry about anthropomorphism because we're human beings and we need to view the, we, we, we view the world in a certain way and then we you know, ascribe emotions and feelings to um, other entities. But it's a waste of time because, like I said before, number one, it's good biology to say that animals have emotions. And number two, the skeptics don't offer anything useful other than mechanistic, you know, um, pictures of animals, you know, in terms of their muscles, muscular movements, or their blood pressure, or the neurons that are firing. That doesn't tell me anything about what the animals are doing or the context in which they're um, behaving. So I have to tell you that my basic um, MO now is if people say, oh, you're being anthropomorphic, I say, thank you. The other thing that people don't realize is the very critics of anthropomorphism if, will say the following. If I tell you that an elephant is unhappy in a zoo, they'll say, oh, you're being anthropomorphic. You know, look at her. She's happy. And all of a sudden, there's this pause, and they say, hmm, what's wrong? And I said, well, isn't it anthropomorphic to say that an animal is happy as well? Exactly. And so it's, I call it anthropomorphic double talk. And, and to be honest, Jared, it's a waste of time. It takes us away from the important work, and that is to work to 
um, learn more about animals and to protect animals. Well, and it's also this this idea um, that science is 100% objective, which, uh, you know, anybody who, who has taken a class in research methodology uh, knows that uh, just choosing to study subject A versus subject B is a subjective decision. And so from, from that point forward, this idea of objectivity is, uh, you know, is, is kind of called into question. But uh, at the same time, uh, while it, it is a waste of time, I just want to make sure that the point is, is made. As you point out in your book, we could only describe animals through uh, human-centered points of view. So how else are we to describe what we're witnessing in animals? Exactly. There's just no other way. Uh, I mean, you know, I thought about it a lot because I was sensitive to the charge of anthropomorphism a while ago, but I just decided that it's a smokescreen... And I, I, I just, to be honest, you know, there's just too many important things to do, um, and I'm not going to engage people. Because, you know, also they'll say, well, you don't know that these animals are, you know, feeling something. And, and you can say the same thing about human beings. So. Well, it's funny because uh, I, I know some humans that uh, don't seem to have any emotions whatsoever. They're pretty cold and, uh, and lifeless, it seems, so, and lacking personality. So I don't know what that says. I mean, there, there are some, uh, sometimes I'd rather be uh, hanging out with my two cats than hanging out with some of the people I have to work with. So, yes. you know, what, what does that say about uh, humans? And there's, uh, I don't know if it was in one of your articles or in one of your, uh, your books where someone says... Uh, well, how do you know animals experience emotions? And you came back and said, how do you know they don't? Exactly. Which, which is uh, a nice way uh, to, to point out the, the kind of double talk or uh, anthropomorphic double talk. Um, we're speaking with Mark Beckoff. He is uh, the author of uh, a number of different works. Uh, could you just give our listeners a couple more examples of uh, the emotional lives of animals, maybe some of the anecdotes um, from uh, one of your works? And uh, it's important, uh, you know, that your book is filled with anecdotes. As you say, they're very important in... Uh, describing animals in their natural context rather than in a laboratory? Yeah, um, you know, I, I was really fortunate to be able to um, be with elephants in the Samburu National uh, Reserve in northern Kenya a couple of years ago, and I met an elephant named Babel. <coughs> Excuse me, and the great thing about Babel was that Babel had been injured when she was very young and couldn't walk faster than a snail, Yet every individual in the group would wait for her and some would feed her. You know, and some people say, oh, you know, you're just, you know, you're wrong. You know, the only reason they would help Babel is because she did something for, um, you know, them. And I thought, no, no, no. There was nothing that Babel could do for them. If she were left alone, she would have been, you know, she would have just been killed. And so that was just wonderful to see. You know, you hear about these things all the time, but to be able to really see them was just amazing. Um, uh, my dog Jethro used to rescue bunnies around my house, and um, he would bring them home to me. And he, you know, would, you know, just basically stop and ask me to take care of them. 
I, I think that was one of my favorite anecdotes, you know, because y- you often hear on the news, uh, you know, it's like those little end of the news broadcast uh human interest feel-good stories about a dog that uh, that is nursing a litter of cats because the mother ran away or, you know, about, uh, you know, a, a pig that's nursing uh, little mice or, you know, crazy things like that. And everyone looks at that and they say, oh, how wonderful. And of course, they anthropomorphize and they recognize that animals can care about the offspring of other species. And yet we don't recognize that there are bigger, broader implications to that end of the newscast feel-good story. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, I love what you just said. There's huge implications. I mean, there's no re- there was no reason, you know, for the animals to help Babel. Um, there's also a wonderful story a few years ago of a whale off of the uh, Farallon Islands in uh, Northern California who got caught in a net, and after five men went in to rescue her, she went around and nodded her head and winked at every one of the men. And, you know, the people, the guys who, you know, were re- um, who did the rescue, you know, they weren't in the market to be anthropomorphic. I mean, you know, they probably didn't think about it in the normal, in their normal day. But they all agreed that that's what the whale did, that she just went around and showed gratitude. And then there's the story of uh, the chimpanzee, uh, sorry, the girl, uh, Binti, Binti Jua, who rescued a boy who fell into her enclosure, you know, five or ten years ago at a zoo in Chicago. Um, then there was a picture of Ghana, this uh, chimpanzee mother, just this past summer at a zoo in Germany. She lost her child and walked around for days carrying the carcass. And it was worldwide, it, you know, it achieved worldwide attention. And um, I must have done a hundred interviews on these things. I swear to God. Um, <laughs> so, so those are the sorts of things you know that are just going on all the time. Well, let's uh, turn then to the uh, important implications of your work, because while it, it makes for a good read, uh, certainly your goal isn't to just entertain people. But uh, if we accept that animals have uh, emotions and emotional lives. What changes should we start to make with regard to our treatment of animals? And that might sound like a softball question, but uh, unfortunately, it's it's not for a lot of people. No, it's not. And I take that question very serious, uh, very seriously, because there's a lot we can do. The first thing, of course, is I think animals should be protected just because they exist. But if that's too, you know, out there for some people, we should not add cruelty to the world. I've been working on this notion called the compassion footprint. So I want people to add compassion, not cruelty, to the world. And by adding compassion, of course, you get rid of cruelty and you also get rid of carbon. So... um, yeah, that, that's one of the things. Sorry to interject. Oh, yeah, sure, sure. Uh, a few weeks ago, we uh, we did a program on uh, global warming and uh, pointing out, of course, that uh, the leading cause is not automobiles. Automobiles is number two, but it's it's you know factory farming and uh, all the things concomitant to that. Right. So so by for example. Um, you know, the example I would give is, you know, like Proposition 2 and other moves around the country. Um, I tell people, if you want to make a difference, you can make a difference for most people within two hours of, um, say, listening to me. And I'll show you how to do it. I'm not going to tell you what to do. What you can do is, if you go to a restaurant, 
if you if you want to eat meat or chicken, ask for the source of the food, and if they can't tell you, choose the vegetarian or the vegan alternative, and then start just making that switch. If you think you can't, uh, you know, go cold turkey, if you will, or cold tofu, right. then fine, cut back on your meat. But one mantra would be never, ever, ever eat factory farmed animals of any sort, any species. And when you can't, uh, you know, find out what the source is, choose the vegetarian or the vegan alternative. Um, this is a social movement. It's asking, we're asking people to make radical changes in their lives, or at least they perceive them to be radical. So we need to be compassionate. You know, I believe in activism, but I believe in compassionate, compassionate and proactive activism. The whole world won't do what Mark Beckoff wants to do. The whole world won't do what anyone wants to do. And so that's what we can do. Uh, don't dissect animals. There's no reason to dissect animals anymore. There's many non-animal alternatives. Don't go to rodeos or circuses. And if you go to a zoo, if you see something you don't like, report it. Yeah, could you, uh, we've, we've focused a lot on rodeos because uh, the rodeo comes to uh, Anaheim, just outside Disneyland, uh, every, uh, every summer. And so uh, we've talked about some of the protests outside there and the harms there. And similarly with the circus. Uh, and so I think listeners are, are well aware of all of those. But zoos always gets a, a mixed reaction amongst people who care about animals because they make the argument that, well, zoos also, uh, you know, try to uh, help endangered species and they do conservation work and, and things of that nature. And, uh, you know, we're uh, in close proximity to the San Diego Zoo, which I think probably or arguably has uh, a reputation of being maybe one of the better zoos out there. Could you just talk a bit about zoos? What is your take on them? Yeah, I mean, I would like to see zoos phased out. But I'm a realist to know that that probably won't happen in the near future. There's enormous practical problems. I mean, you know, let's just face it. You know, the animals in zoos can't just be let out into the streets. And most of the animals in the zoos for sure cannot be um, released, you know. So, so, so we need to just accept that. But what we do owe people, uh, sorry, what we owe the animals is to take care of them and give them the best care that they have. And one way you take the care of the animals is you give, you know, you provide them better welfare, if you will, but you also do not have animals who don't belong in zoos. So first of all, you get rid of all the elephants, as at least five zoos in America um, are doing, and you don't have wide-ranging carnivores. Um, so that, that would, that's the first thing that I um, say. The second thing is you got to get zoos to stop lying to the public. Zoos make little to no contribution in education or conservation. Even the zoos themselves admit that. Even the American, um, the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, which oversees zoos in America, admits it. Um, in their own executive report, they admit there's no data to show that zoos make a meaningful contribution either to education and conservation. And their latest study is just a total study, if you will, in just misleading people about, you know, the words they use. You know, you know, 40% of the people leave and they say that they are now more aware of certain issues. But that doesn't translate into them doing a darn thing 
for the animals. Yeah, and it's you know it's interesting because there there are so many different ways to support conservation and to protect endangered species. But you know, paying twenty bucks a pop or whatever it might be now to get into a zoo uh, in order to protect uh, animals might not be the most uh, effective way to do that. Yes, exactly. And and you know the thing that people don't realize too is like at the Denver Zoo where I live, Denver, Colorado. I live in Boulder actually. Only 4% of their budget goes into conservation. At the Bronx Zoo, the New York Zoological Society, which has, um, houses also the Wildlife Conservation Society that does amazing things for animals, almost 40% of the budget goes to conservation. So zoos are just sort of BSing us when they say that they put a lot into you know, conservation and education. The fact is they don't. Even the San Diego Zoo doesn't put all that much into it, but they have a superb conservation department. So I think over time, when people start questioning zoos or making contributions and saying, I want this money to go to a certain cause, we may see an improvement in zoos. One of your books is titled Animals at Play, Rules of the Game, and it is uh, a children's book. Uh, how did you decide to, uh, to write a children's book and tell our listeners uh, a bit about it? Well, the book came out of my 30 years of research. And, you know, to be quite frank with you, one of the things that I was so concerned about was that there were so many books being published for kids about animals by people who never studied animals. And um, I picked up a book on play in animals, and it was just full of errors. And so I decided that really the thing we need to do is get the truth about animals out to children. I also did a book called Strolling with Our Kin, which was written for an older audience. Um, the book basically shows um, by example how animals play with one another. And it talks about how animals are fair to one another. They rarely, if ever, cheat during play. I know a lot of people say, well, I've seen dogs invite another dog to play, and then they beat them up. That's actually very rare. Um, and that, um, that whole idea, we actually spell out more um, with my co uh, collaborator, philosopher Jessica Pierce. We have a book that will be published in March called Wild Justice, The Moral Lives of Animals. And the whole argument there, and it gets back to what you were talking about uh, before, Jared, and that is that animals can be, um, uh, sorry, the differences among animals, you know, are differences, you know, in degree rather than differences in kind. Human beings are not the only moral beings. That's, you know, that's essentially what the bottom line um, message is. Well, we're running short on time, and I want to make sure that you could uh, let our listeners know about your idea of uh, an animal's manifesto. So if you could quickly run down uh, what you're calling for. Right. Um, basically, the idea of the manifesto um, is it's a book I just completed, and I'll have to tweak and get into the publisher in a few months. It'll be published next fall. It's basically 10 reasons why to increase our uh, compassion footprint. And another subtitle is 10 reasons why animals are asking us to treat them better or leave them alone. And 
because they exist, because this land is their land, not only our land, because animals are more than we give them credit for, um, because animals and humans can help one another. Um, you know, those are some of the reasons. Um, there's 10 of them. And it's a manifesto because since I study animals and I know animals, I believe what animals, um, I believe I can tell you, uh, people pretty reliable what animals need and what animals want. It's also a move, um, like I said before, to make the world a more compassionate place. Um, in my book, The Emotional Lives of Animals, the Dalai Lama wrote a really lovely blurb, and we were honored that His Holiness could do that. But in his blurb and in correspondence, he pointed out that we must have more compassion to other beings. It not only helps them, but it also helps us. And uh, what about the issue of uh, animal experimentation? I, I think that your, your section in, in your book uh, really does a good job of uh, making the case for uh, a more humane way of uh, of dealing with them. That is, first, don't refer to them as numbers, but uh, I don't know if we want to say humanize them, but at least make them, you know, sentient beings rather than numbers. But then, you know, you also point out that uh, there's there's really an over-dependency on uh, the use of animals in the laboratory, and yet amongst many of my friends who are vegetarian or vegan, uh, that's the one area where, you know, they have reservations. Uh, so could you talk briefly about that? Yeah. Um, there's no need to use animals in biomedical research. There's ample data now that show that there are non-animal alternatives. There's ample data to show that numerous people die, for example, from drugs that have been previously tested um, on animals. And there's numerous studies that show that most animals who we study in laboratories in biomedical research are highly stressed and that the data we collect are compromised because of the stress. This is not coming from people in the animal rights movement. This is coming from hardcore scientists and doctors who study animals. Um, so I think that we are extremely, I mean, these are extremely difficult questions because you know, we all know people, including perhaps ourselves, who have benefited, you know, from drugs and other procedures that have been learned, um, uh, been done on animals. But I really do mean that the time is coming now where people, including researchers, are very aware. So some things your listeners might not know is that the National Diabetes Center in um, Florida, which is um, the leading uh, diabetes research center in the world, two years ago decided they weren't going to use rodent models of um, diabetes anymore because they just weren't um, satisfactory. Um, People who study um, eating disorders will tell you that most people do not, most physicians, most, um, you know, people who look at learning disorders in humans do not know about their own research. So it's not only that the research is done, and it's good research, if you will, but they don't even know about it. So, you know, it's those sorts of things. But... Yeah, and it, it's interesting to learn that uh, the uh, Animal Welfare Act does not define, uh, what is it, rats, birds, and uh, uh, certain mice as animals, <laughs> which yeah. is scary. Well, it, it is, it's true. I mean, people don't believe it, but once again, just go on the web. 
Rats, mice, and birds and other animals have been declared not to be animals under the current revision of the Animal Welfare Act. It's just, it's, I mean, it's not something people are making up. And that's and, to allow them to continue to be used in uh, potentially harmful ways in the laboratory. Right. And the other thing that people don't know, um, as I point out in the manifesto, because I just got these data recently, is people don't know that, like in 2007 alone, there were 2,100-plus violations of the Animal Welfare Act, and those are the ones that were just reported. You know, these are not even ones that, you know, you would know about. And 75% of all laboratories were guilty of an infraction, including labs at Harvard and University of Pennsylvania and other places. Once again, these are not data that are created by animal protectionists. These are data that are available to anybody. So we need to come clean with the fact that animals shouldn't feel safe when they are in laboratories or in slaughterhouses um, because existing laws, laws don't protect them. And uh, I should point out that your book contains uh, a lot of different examples of non-invasive research. You know, one of the things I find interesting, you know, we've been spending a lot of time talking about uh, anthropomorphism, and I find it interesting that uh, when uh, humans attribute emotions to animals, uh, they get accused of anthropomorphism. But when researchers conduct medical research on animals and attribute the findings in animals to humans, they don't get accused of that same kind of process. Exactly. So. No, exactly. That's a, yeah. I mean, like I said, it's a very confused situation. And what I've decided in my writings and in my talks is I'm going to try to be nice to everyone and because people don't like being bullied. But it is very complex and very confused to change our ways right now. Well, and uh, let us uh, end off with that kind of question, and I want to thank you. I've kept you a little longer than I had anticipated, but uh, how do you talk to people about the issue of animal rights? Uh, you know, one of the things that I commend your work for a lot of the times you, you see literature on animal rights or you see documentaries and it, it reads like, like a snuff film or, you know, a torture memo. Uh, and your work really focuses on the positive experiences that animals can experience. How do you go about broaching the subject of people that you might think are sympathetic to a vegetarian or a vegan lifestyle, but you don't want to sound preachy? Um, I show them how easy it is to make the changes that will add compassion to the world. I tell them to be pro the animal, not anti something. So be pro whales, not anti whaling. Be pro mice, not anti the use of research. Show people what we really know about these wonderful animals. Concentrate on the uh, successes, not the failures. Look, I mean, this is a hard movement. I can understand why people burn out, but I'm an unflagging optimist. I, I, I really am. You know, I do a lot of work with Jane Goodall. I've worked with her in the past, and she's a very positive person. But, you know, if there's anyone in the world who has been exposed to the horrors of what's happening, it's definitely you know, um, Jane. So I try to say be nice, be proactive, be compassionate. Don't tell people what to do because no one likes to be told what to do. Um, work with kids, you know. Um, you know, just like I said, this is hard. 
Yeah, but, you, you know, it's interesting because I have, uh, my students know that, uh, I, I tell them I'm about 85% vegan. I mean, sometimes if, if I go out with my friends, it's, it's hard to, to pick and choose which restaurants you go to, but I'm either 85% vegan or 100% vegetarian. Right. And one of my students this semester, you know, emailed me and said, you know, mm-hmm. I, I think I'm going to try going vegan for, for a week. Um, how do I go about doing it? And I emailed back and I said, you don't, you know, you would never give up your car for a week in, in Southern California because you, you, (laughs) you know, it just, it's not going to work. And, uh, you know, I've interviewed activists on this program and one of the things that they say, which I think is really important, uh, and, and it resonates with what you said about emphasizing the positive rather than the negative. I told this student, don't just give up eating meat or give up dairy, but start drinking soy milk or start eating tofu dogs or start add something to your life rather than make activism or a movement always about sacrifice. And then after a while, if you start to realize that you don't need regular dairy anymore because you're, you're having soy milk, that's a way to make the change gradually rather than it, you know, we, we don't all have to suffer for, uh, for trying to do the right thing. Right. Exactly. And people get upset with me when I say the same thing. But I do tell people, that's what I meant before, you know, not going cold turkey or cold tofu. Right. I say to people, okay, you eat five cheeseburgers a week, cut back to three for a month, two for the next month, and do it slowly. Because you're right, people don't give up the things they like very rapidly. However, I can tell you right now that when people do that, I've had so many people tell me, that they become vegetarian after either reading my books or listening to me or reading, you know, my stuff on uh, and others. I don't mean that in a self-serving way. Right. Because I'm nice to them. I don't scream at them. And, you know, I think we're seeing a lot of that happening in the animal protection movement now. A lot of people who were very much in your face are less so because you want to make change. you got to treat people with respect. If you don't treat people with respect, they're not going to treat animals with respect. The book is called The Emotional Lives of Animals. It is uh, available at uh, your local bookstore, or you can uh, check it out at newworldlibrary.com. There is also Animals at Play, and uh, you can check out what is your uh, your website address is literati.net. That is L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I dot net slash Beckoff, and that's B-E-K O-F-F. Uh, Professor Beckoff, I want to thank you so much for joining us, and uh, do let us know when uh, your new work comes out so we can have you back on. You bet. Thank you so much, and if any of your um, listeners have questions, they can email me, so thanks so much. Thank you, and have a good holiday. Okay, thank <laughs> Take you. Take care. Bye-bye, Jared.